See that you do not despise one of these little ones, for I tell you that in heaven their angels always see the face of my Father who is in heaven. What do you think? If a man has a hundred sheep and one of them has gone astray, does he not leave the ninety-nine on the mountains and go in search of the one that went astray? And if he finds it, truly I say to you, he rejoices over it more than over the ninety-nine that never went astray. So it is not the will of my Father who is in heaven that one of these little ones should perish. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. If he refuses to listen to them, tell it to the church. And if he refuses to listen even to the church, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by my Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there am I among them. The grass withers, the flower fades, Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, we confess that we're challenged by this vision of uh, your gospel's implications for our relationships. And yet we're drawn to it at the same time. It is so beautiful. It is so like the way you have dealt with us. And how we pray that in these minutes you would demolish everything in our hearts, every obstacle, every clog, every hesitancy and reluctance, every refusal that we put up or that is in our way or that we have come to accept and tolerate in our own lives so that we would live out the gospel truly. Our relationships as brothers and sisters would tell the truth about you better than they are currently or have in the past. And we pray particularly today for our non-Christian friends and guests who are with us this morning, that you would draw them and call them out of darkness and into your marvelous light and make this the day of their salvation. I pray in your name. Amen. Boy, you know, when I, uh, as I've been thinking about verse 15 in particular and this whole process that our Lord outlines in uh, Matthew 18, I'm just so struck by how much failure there is behind me in my own life uh, relationally and how much room I have to grow in front of me. And it's very humbling. And it's supposed to be. Because, uh, friends, if the costs of the community that Jesus builds could be paid by us, then Jesus Christ didn't need to live and die and rise again. The big idea that we've been tracing across uh, Matthew 16, Matthew 17, and Matthew 18 now is that the church which Jesus builds by his cross is made and continually remade in the image of that cross. And so when Jesus reaches chapter 18, or what we call Matthew 18, when he reaches this block of teaching with his disciples after he's been explaining uh, for two full chapters the meaning of his cross 
and, and, and his destiny, the necessity of his cross, and his willingness to go to the cross for his people, now as he begins to slow down in chapter 18 and to roll his sleeves up and to get into the nitty-gritty details of, okay, what are the implications of, the cro- of my cross, my, the necessity of my cross, that I have to die for the sins of everyone in my church, and, my, and the desirability of my cross, that I'm willing to do it, that, I'm, that I want to do it in order to give myself as a substitute for my people. Now, what are the implications of those truths about the cross for how you, as my disciples, are going to relate to one another? That's what we've been thinking about in chapter 18. And when we get to verse 15, now in particular, Jesus is explaining to us how we deal with conflict in our relationships Uh, as brothers and sisters. How do these two strands of the cross's necessity and its desirability for Jesus, how do those two strands of the music of the gospel combine to transform our relationships? And we're going to just be in verse 15 this morning. We're going to get to the right of the comma this week, so good news. And and, and I want, it's worth two weeks of our time because uh, it's not only where Jesus begins, but friends, it's where so often we don't even start. And so I, I want to look at verse 15 with you very slowly because it is absolutely essential to the healthy life of a church. And, and, and if our life as a church is going to tell the truth about Jesus Christ. It's absolutely critical. And we just skip over this verse all the time. So three headings this morning. Our preparation, which is a cross-sharing culture. Our conversation, which is a cross-shaped appeal. And then our motivation, a cross-displaying love. So our preparation, our conversation, and our motivation. Our preparation... Uh, Friends, uh, verse 15 doesn't come out of a vacuum. It doesn't emerge out of nowhere. Uh, Jesus has been uh, explaining uh, what he wants the the inside of his church to look like, and there's a particular culture that Jesus intends his cross will beget inside his church. And it's a a culture that is bound together uh, by a unity around his cross, and then also bound together by a shared responsibility to share that cross uh, with one another. So let me explain to you what I mean. Let's think first about how, how what Jesus has done so far in Matthew 18 is he has explained to us as his disciples, and we've been thinking about this very carefully and deliberately over the past weeks, he's explaining to us the basis of our unity as Christians. And the more I've thought and reflected about Matthew 18, the more central verses 10 through 14 have really become in my understanding of what our Lord is teaching in this chapter. Because verses 10 through 14, Jesus, I believe, uses those verses to emphasize for us that every disciple is bound together by exactly the same story. That regardless of our backgrounds and our different paths that uh, the Lord Jesus led us on to uh, find him or to be found by him, uh, in the end, every Christian shares the same story. And it's the story of the Father not despising us when we're in our sins. The Son, not despising us when we were in our sins and had gone astray, but the Son, like the shepherd in verses 12 through 13 that Jesus uses as an illustration, which is an autobiographical illustration, that in our lostness, the way Jesus, as the good shepherd, responded to our lostness, and this is true for every single Christian. This is your spiritual biography, friends. It doesn't matter whether you grew up in a covenant home and were taught the gospel while you sat on your mother's knee or whether you were an adult convert. This is your biography. In your sin, in your lostness, in your need, the Father and the Son did not despise you, but the Father sent the Son 
And the son came like that shepherd, and he, he was energized, not by anger against you, but by his love for you. And he came, and he entered your lostness. He identified with you. Because that was the only way you were going to be rescued. You were not going to find your way. I was not going to find my way out of our lostness. No, the only way, the only way that the wayward sheep could be found is if the shepherd left his safety and entered the lostness of the sheep. It was necessary that the shepherd enter the lostness of the sheep. And he came and he found us. He had to think and live and see the world through the eyes of a sheep. And that's what the incarnation is about. And then at the very peak, he had to go into the heart of our lostness. He did this for us. And that he did at the cross, friends, totally identifying with our lostness, bearing in his own body, right, the penalty, the just penalty for our straying, rescuing us out of that lostness and bringing us home to the Father rejoicing. Friends, that is your story. That is the story of every single person who belongs to Jesus Christ. And that is a massive ground for unity. Did you see, by the way, the first reflection quote from Psalm 133? Look at this with me on page three of your bulletin. I love this psalm. Page three of your bulletin, Psalm 133. Now, this is one of those little psalms that it's easy for you to rush past. I hope you never do this again when you get to Psalm 133. It's so beautiful. Look at it. Behold how good and pleasant it is when brothers dwell in unity. It is like the precious, look at this, think about this image. It is like the precious oil on the head running down on the beard, on the beard of Aaron, running down on the collar of his robes. In other words, the unity of God's people is a gift that comes down. It's a blessing that God gives, that comes down upon us. It's not a work that we present to God. It is a blessing, a gift that comes down. And notice the image is that it's like the oil, the anointing oil, the fragrant anointing oil on Aaron, the high priest. And that oil comes as a mark of God's uh, calling upon him to, to be the representative of his people, to intercede for them, to represent them before God. And that oil comes down on his head and then very slowly, beautiful poetry it comes down from above and it goes down Aaron's beard and then it goes onto the collar of his robe and the image is that Aaron is suffused with and covered with this beautiful evidence of God's calling upon him. Friends, the unity of the people of God is like that. And the unity that we enjoy as Christians is a unity that is given to us by our high priest's work for us. And so, friends, our preparation for the conversation in verse 15 uh, begins with the fact that we all share the same story. We are united by the cross of Jesus Christ. And the wonder of that shared story needs to feel heavy to us and to bind us close together. And then that makes us stewards, friends. We have a responsibility to share that story with one another. In verse 15, if you look at it, what Jesus is doing, look, look at what he is saying. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. You know what Jesus is doing there? He's sending you to your brother or to your sister who has sinned, sending you to them as a missionary to evangelize them again with the gospel. He's sending you as his under-shepherds. It's just like he says in John 20 to his disciples after his resurrection, as, my fa as the Father has sent me, even so I am sending you. What carries us across that chasm when our brother or sister sends, 
sins against us, what carries us across that chasm, what makes us unwilling to accept that chasm as the new status quo, what makes us willing to cross that chasm is remembering this wonder that Jesus crossed a much greater chasm for us. And when that is fresh in our minds, friends, we're going to want to give again to our brother or sister the same thing that we have received. And that is a great privilege if you think about it. That's not a drudgery. That's a privilege of sharing the gospel story with one another, of singing the the music of the gospel to one another. What does it mean to be in fellowship with one another as Christians. Friends, I'll tell you, this is what Paul says. Turn with me to Colossians chapter 3. You're going to get calluses on your fingers this morning, so warm up. Colossians chapter 3. I love this vision of the cross, I mean of the church. Verse 16. Paul says, and notice, notice this, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. The word about Christ, the word from Christ, the gospel, the story of the shepherd who has come to rescue us. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly. In other words, what Paul is saying the church is supposed to be marked by is that there's, we're supposed to be a culture in which fascination with the gospel is the main thing. The church is to be defined by this insatiable appetite for the gospel. Let the word of Christ, the word about Christ, the word from Christ, dwell in you richly. And what do you do with that word? Watch. Teaching and admonishing one another. You see, the the gift that comes down of the word of Christ is then stewarded. And we all are gospel teachers, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing. Do you see that? The music of the gospel. When the gospel gets inside of you, it will not stay inside of you. It will come out. It will come out in a desire to share that gospel with your brothers and sisters and to sing and to celebrate that gospel, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in your hearts to God. Now think about the environment that Paul is imagining there and calling uh, for us to promote and pursue inside the church and then connect that with chapter 18 in Matthew verse 15. You see, Jesus' command that when our brother sins against us, we are to go to him and tell him it's a fault, us and him alone. Jesus is assuming, right, a vision, a context for the church in which the news of his gospel is going to be constantly radiating, constantly going forth constantly being renewed and celebrated and sung over and over again. The vision is that we are to be always, all of us, you notice how Colossians 3.16 flattens out all the distinctions in the church? It puts that obligation to let the word of Christ dwell richly in you, to teach and admonish one another in all wisdom, and to sing in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. That's everybody's obligation in the gospel. It, that, doesn't, that doesn't have anything to do with whether you're an elder or whether you're a, a, an older member, whether you're a new Christian or you've been a Christian for a long time. That's every Christian's duty. And in verse 15, what, what Jesus is saying is that that command to go and speak to our brother is embedded in a context in which we are already, my friends, uh, teaching one another and reaching one another with the gospel and also an environment in which we are already being reached by the gospel through our brothers and sisters and being taught the gospel by our brothers and sisters. And in that kind of environment, friends, then there's a context for hard conversations like you see Jesus describing in verse 15. In other words, there has to be a relationship in order for you to pursue 
a relationship, which is why last week I asked you the question, who is there besides those members of your own household, who is there in this church whom you are close enough to, regularly enough and long enough to be sinned against by them? And for them to be sinned against by you? If there is no answer to that, then your relationships in the church with your brothers and sisters aren't real enough or close enough. And this context of radiating the gospel out is the preparation and the foundation for all of us uh, for verse 15. Just a couple of weeks ago, I had been whining about something. Let me tell you how this worked for me in one relationship in which the other person is going to remain nameless. I was whining about something, and I was with somebody, member of our church, and I was whining about something. And it was sort of a, you know, I know how to kind of, I know how to spin these things, so in my heart it was a, it was a murmuring, but I knew how to package it so that it was kind of camouflaged. And I was with this person, and I said something, and then uh, a day later I was with that person again sitting at dinner, in the, other, uh, in the other room in the fellowship hall and a conversation arose with someone else and it gave me another opportunity to bring it out. And I did. And uh, this brother who was sitting next to me leaned over to me and he says, you know, just very quietly, he says, you know, it's not helpful for you to mention that. You should probably just let it go. Now I gotta tell you something. As soon as he said it, I was like, that's absolutely right. That's absolutely right. I'm sorry. There's a whole lot of that. See, what he was doing was he was calling me to the gospel in that situation, and he did it very gently, and it didn't take a 15-minute conversation, but he did it out of love for me and the glory of Christ. It was beautiful. And because there was an existing relationship, I was prepared to accept even a hard thing from him. So that's the preparation. What about the conversation? Okay, so now there's this context of unity and responsibility in which we are sharing the gospel with one another. In other words, the the offense is we've got a relationship with a brother or sister and the offense is not the only chapter in that relationship. We've got... We've got some history in which not just negative things are being said, in which there, there, there's, a, there's an environment of trust and love and appreciation uh, where I'm not just coming in with a payload to drop a bomb. But there are a lot of chapters in this story because we've spent time together, and therefore when I have to talk to my brother or sister, that's about their sin against me. It's just one chapter in a larger story. How do you do that conversation? How are you supposed to think about that conversation? And, and I believe that we're supposed to think about it this way. It's supposed to be a cross-shaped appeal. Now, three things I want to point out to you about the conversation Jesus describes here. First is its threshold, and the second is our obligation to have the conversation, and the third is the obstacles that we encounter in pursuing those conversations. I want you to notice that the threshold Jesus describes in verse 15 is a high threshold. It's sin. Do you see that? If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault. In other words, Jesus is imposed. Now think about that. It's really important. How will you, Jesus assumes that you and I, as his disciples, are going to be able to and will distinguish between what is sin and what isn't. What is sin? Well, a shorter catechism tells us that sin is any want of conformity unto or transgression against or of the law of God. In other words, sin is defined in terms of God's law. You either fail to live up to it or you violate it. And Jesus is assuming that our relationships with one another are going to be lived out under the authority 
of God's revealed will in his law. And he assumes that we're going to be able to distinguish between things that are sin and mere disappointment or hurt feelings or uh, let down expectations or failures. And there are all kinds of those things in our relationships with one another that don't rise or sink to the level of sin. Amen? See, Jesus is assuming, friends, that in the ordinary course, with this threshold, Jesus is assuming that in the ordinary course of doing life together as brothers and sisters in Christ, there's going to be a whole lot of things, even disagreements, disappointments, maybe even hurt feelings, things that happen in that jostling, in that rough and tumble, things that, you know, you know because we're not perfect, things that are going to be less than ideal in our relationships, all kinds of things. That, are, that don't rise or sink to the level of sin that we don't need to and we shouldn't be expecting to confront our brother or sister about. Jesus isn't giving us a license to weaponize our relationships. Oh, you nudged me. See, the gospel is supposed to make us sturdy. We're supposed to be less fragile because of the gospel, not more fragile. we should be able to distinguish between what is sin and what isn't. And how's that going to happen? Well, you and I are going to learn the difference. We're going to learn to distinguish between what is sin and what isn't by being instructed from God's Word. And that happens both personally and corporately. Think about what Paul says in Romans 12 too. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed. How? By the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may prove what is the will of God, that which is good and acceptable and perfect. In other words, the expectation of discipleship is that the Christian is going to be constantly driven by a desire to know what the Lord's will is and to test, to work it, to take what the, word, what the Lord says and has revealed in His Word and to put it in practice and to learn and to be in an environment where we are being discipled. Even in the worship service, I know that we don't often think this way about worship, but friends, do you know that worship is the workshop of discipleship? You, should, you and I learn how to be Christians through what we do in the worship service. And we are learning daily what it means to belong to Jesus Christ and to serve him in our personal worship as well. And so Jesus is telling us that we, he's holding us responsible, friends, to know, to learn, and to put into practice the will of God. It's a very high threshold. And Jesus gives us an obligation. The conversation that Jesus describes in verse 15 is a command Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. Now, friends, it's so obvious that we ought to be able to move right past it. But because it is so rarely followed, I don't want to take anything for granted, either on my own behalf or your behalf. If your brother or sister sins against you and you have an obligation to have a conversation. You're obligated to have a conversation, but let me clarify what I mean by that. Because a lot of times it's not clear, right? So what, the first thing I want you to see is that Jesus says your conversation is to be between your brother or sister and you alone. And that means that you don't go speaking to other people about this burden of your heart and, and dressing it up in some kind of pious-sounding prayer language. Could you please pray for me? Because I may have to go have a conversation with, you know, Engelbert about this. No, you, you don't have a conversation with anyone except your father. 
until you've spoken with your brother or sister. Jesus is very clear here that the conversation is supposed to happen between you and your brother alone. And you know, you know what an important filter that is? Because if you kick against those goads, you know what it reveals? It reveals that your motivation is not that your brother would be recovered. It reveals that there is another agenda of your heart which perhaps wants your brother or sister to be lowered in the estimate, uh, estimates of others and for you to be raised. But I do think it's imperative that you speak to another before you speak to your brother, and that, uh, that another is your father. And this is exactly what Jesus has taught us even in the Lord's Prayer. Think about it. What's the fifth petition of the Lord's Prayer? Now, count down, count down, count down. Forgive us our debts. At, f- finish it for me. As we forgive our debtors, you see, that's a daily prayer for the Christian. And Jesus is, is instructing us to speak to the Father about our debtors. In other words, those people who sinned against us. And what that does, friends, is that what should be happening is that our heart, in, in, in acknowledging that, spreading it out before the Father, friends, spreading even our anger out before the Father, our fear of the conversation, spreading all that out before the Father. Friends, you are seeking to have your heart tuned to the music of the gospel. It is absolutely critical that you do that because if you don't do that, you're going to rush into that conversation with your brother or sister and your heart is not going to be where it should be. And very often, right, very often what will happen is that you will experience great clarity when you pray. Things that you thought will be corrected. Perceptions that you've been operating toward will suddenly become uh, challenged. Do you and I expect our Father to teach and instruct us as we are praying and asking Him for guidance? We should, and particularly in this area, I commend this to you. Friends, look, look with me at Leviticus 19, which is uh, your second uh, reflection quote. Leviticus 19, 17 through 18. Jesus is echoing this in verse 15. I bet when you woke up this morning, you weren't expecting to, to go to Leviticus in the sermon, were you? Okay. But look, look at how wise this is, how beautiful this is, how insightful this is into our hearts and how challenging it is. This is the Lord speaking. You shall not hate your brother in your heart. Well, why would I do that? But you shall reason frankly with your neighbor lest you incur sin because of him. Well, what's going on? Look at verse 18. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people. In other words, the Lord is describing a situation in which your neighbor has, has sinned against you. That's clear from the, the command in verse 18, not to, not to take vengeance or to bear a grudge. And so then that clarifies what, why you would potentially hate your brother in your heart and why the Lord instructs us in verse 17, instead of hating your brother in your heart, reason frankly with him. Now, what I want you to notice about that is how the Lord equates uh, hating our neighbor with the failure to reason frankly with him about his sin against us. In other words, what the Lord is saying is, you are not loving your neighbor as yourself if when your neighbor, your brother or sister, sins against you, you do not speak to him or her about it. And in fact, look at the end of verse 17. If you don't do it, it is sin. Because Why? Why would that be the case? They sinned. Why would my silence potentially be culpable. Why would that be sin on my part? Because the whole idea, friends, is that you are your brother's keeper. 
If you don't speak to your brother or your sister about their sin against you, you are not protecting them against the possibility of continuing to engage in that same conduct. The Lord is appointing you the watchman of your brother here. Which is exactly what Jesus is doing in verse 15. To love my neighbor is to go to my neighbor and to reason frankly with him or her about her sin. If you don't, the Lord is saying, you're actually hating your neighbor. Now, why would that be the case? Well, because what you're doing is you're thinking more about yourself than you are about your neighbor. And your neighbor needs to be rescued. Your, re- your neighbor needs to be um, recovered. And you're, you're, you're not the good Samaritan. Your neighbor, when your neighbor sins against you, we don't think about it this way. We think uh, we're, we're the man in the ditch, right? That's what we think. But in fact, when our neighbor sins against us, the vision that the Lord gives us in Leviticus 19 is that our brother, our offending brother, is the one in the ditch. And we're like the Levite and the priest. We're just walking right by. We see them, and we don't want to go anywhere near them. And the Lord is saying that that is hate of our brother and sister. You see how important this is? And you notice how the Lord at the very end of Leviticus 19.18 says, I am the Lord. Why does he say that? Why does he add that? It's not just about, it's not just his declaration, I think, of his authority. I think he's saying, I'm the Lord, and everything that I commanded you not to do, I don't do, and everything that I commanded you to do is exactly what I've done. I reason frankly with my people in the face of their sin. I don't hold a grudge or vengeance against them. I move toward them. I warn them, I, uh, I've appointed myself the watchman of my people. And friends, that is exactly what Jesus himself has done. And that's what he's wanting us to live out. That's what verse 15 is describing. You and I have the opportunity to speak with our brother or sister in a way that is designed to help them and to rescue them because he has appointed us their watchman. So friends, let me ask you, is there anyone who is coming up on your screen right now in this sermon, is there any relationship uh, that, that you have, that, that you can't stop thinking about right now where you need to have a conversation? Is, is the Lord pushing upon you the concrete application of verse 15 in a particular relationship right now? Friends, if he is, have the conversation. Can you trust God? Yeah, of course you're afraid. Of course you're afraid. Who loves conflict? Not me. Of course you're afraid, but can you you imagine that the same Father, the same Lord, the same Holy Spirit, who together command you to speak to your brother, can you imagine that this God will give you the grace sufficient to obey the command? And on the other side, friend, is there somebody approaching you to speak to you? Yesterday I was reading uh, Psalm 141, and uh, I got to verse 5, and it just, it just stunned me. Some of you probably read it with me. David says this, Let a righteous man strike me. It is a kindness. Let him rebuke me. It is oil for my head. Let my head not refuse it. In other words, to be corrected in the Lord is to be protected in the Lord. Do you want to be rescued? Do you want, when you're in the, in the, in the ocean and the waves are high and you're in over your head, do you want the Coast Guard helicopter to come by? Or will you say, too noisy, You're just going to reinforce that I made a mistake. I shouldn't have gone sailing. 
I didn't listen. Is that, right? I mean, eh, right? Crazy, right? So when your brother or sister comes to you in this environment with the music of the gospel on their lips, friends, may you see it as God's mercy to you and accept it. And friends, if you're challenged and you don't think, oh, I can't do this, I'm not a confrontational person. Friends, this isn't about confrontation. This is about a conversation. And you are only responsible for your side of that conversation. And be very careful because there are obstacles to our doing this that that we paper over all the time. And the two most common, I think, are first, the one that the Lord identifies in Leviticus 19, which is that we really don't care about our brother or sister. We don't love them. We don't love them enough to go across the chasm and to say, you know, remember when this happened? Remember when you said that? Um, I think that that was sin against me. And that hurt me. And let me tell you that I'm coming to talk to you, uh, not because I want justice from you, but because I love you and I want our relationship to be harmonious and I want your relationship with the Lord to not have any clogs or obstacles in it. I want the music of the gospel uh, to be uh, heard loud and clear in our relationship. That's just a conversation. Friends, don't hate your brother. And hate is indifference to your brother. That's the first obstacle. But the second one is, you know, if you, you regard your brother too lightly, that's the first one. You know what the second one is? You take them too seriously. In this sense, you fear them. Check your heart, friends. If you are not pursuing, if you have one of these situations, and maybe this is all for a rainy day, maybe, maybe all of this in your life is the, the Lord, we're working through this now for you because this is going to be relevant to you in the future. And, and, and so I hope you're taking good notes. But maybe for some of you, this is immediately presently relevant. And I want you to think about this. And you're not having the conversation. You're reluctant to have the conversation. There's a block. There's an obstacle. Check your heart, friends. Make sure that the reason you're not having the conversation isn't because you need the approval of that other person and you're afraid of losing it. Make sure, friends, check your heart and make sure that the reason you're not having the conversation isn't because you're afraid of losing that person's acceptance. They might not like you. You might not be in their inner circle anymore. Friends, those are very dangerous sins because what you're doing is you are living for their approval more than Jesus's. And what you've done is Jesus has given you a totally clear command here. If your brother sins against you, go and tell him his fault, you and him alone. He's given you a command. There's no wiggle room in that. I've tried. There's no wiggle room in that. And if you, because of something, some scenario that you envision that you're afraid of in this conversation with your brother, if you decline to obey Jesus Christ, what you're doing is you're saying that, that this person or this thing that I need from that person, their acceptance or access to something or the favor, that is my functional master and not Jesus Christ. I'm obeying that or them and not Jesus. And the Puritans called that the sin of man-pleasing and Richard Baxter says that if you make other men your master, you will have as many masters as there are eyes that behold you. It is a terrible way to live. I speak from personal experience. Do not fear man, but love man. You know, you cannot love somebody freely whose approval you cannot risk losing. You cannot love somebody truly whose acceptance you can't afford to lose. You might think it's love, but it's not love. 
You're using that person. You're not loving them. They're a means to an end for you. And the reason it works that way is because if you need their acceptance, you need their approval, you fear their anger, you fear their disappointment in you so much that you're not going to obey Jesus. Friends, what in fact is happening is that, is that you are making them your master. You're using them in a way that isn't love. Your, your, every one of your moves in that relationship is calculated and calibrated according to what you need in the relationship, not what they need. And that is not loving your neighbor as yourself. Finally, what's our motivation? Well, the motivation is love. It's cross-displaying love. The love from God in Christ toward us that overflows from us toward our wayward brother or sister. And the goal that Jesus is describing here in verse 15 isn't our brother's confession. See, that's very, that's very interesting. You know, when, when, when I'm in conflict, for example, with Maria, so often I am so out of sorts because what I really want is I want, I want to hear these words from Maria. You were right. That's what I want. And the flip side of that sentence is I was wrong. So I work toward that goal. That's what I'm going after. That's my treasure. It's not a gospel goal. It's not the goal that Jesus has in mind in verse 15 here. No, there's a goal he wants us to work for. It's the same goal that he worked for in our lives, which is our restoration. Look at the way Jesus describes the successful outcome of verse 15. Now, next week we're going to talk about what happens if it, doesn't, if it doesn't succeed initially. But for now, just look at how he describes the successful outcome in verse 15. If he listens to you, and the implication is he repents, you have gained your brother. Now, that's very interesting language. You have gained your brother. The word that gets translated gain there usually is used to describe making a profit in a business. That's interesting, because notice how the way, that, the way he says that, you have gained your brother. That's not how we would write it or imagine it. That's not where we would place the emphasis. I mean, we, we would probably think, okay, our brother, like for example, uh, take my Coast Guard example, which is an imperfect analogy, but it's all I gotta work with right now. Okay, so your brother is the person in the drink. You are the person uh, in the helicopter coming to rescue them, right? And your brother in the drink, you pull him out of the water and you save him from drowning. Jesus is saying that you're the one as the rescuer who has gained. Now that's the opposite of what we would think. We would think that it would be our offending brother, our brother who had strayed, who had gained. See, we would write it this way. If he listens to you, your brother has gained. But Jesus describes it this way. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. You see what he's saying? He's saying that the treasure that you are to be after is not the confession, not the admission of wrong, but your brother, the relationship. And so what that highlights is that what the great injury was, was not whatever you suffered uh, because of your brother's sin against you, but your great loss, the loss that propels you across the chasm, is your brother. It's your brother. He's what you want. The relationship is what matters to you. Not getting him to say, you were right, and I was wrong. You're vindicated, and I'm condemned. Friends, what Jesus is calling us to do is to be imitators of God, not of Cain. You remember Cain? Who, when the Lord asked him, where's Abel? Remember what Cain's response was? Am I my brother's keeper? 
And what verse 15 is, friends, is like I said before, what verse 15 is Jesus Christ calling us to not be Cain. He's calling us. He's reminding us that as his people, he has appointed us to be our brother's keepers, to not be Cain. And he's doing that because he made himself as our brother, our keeper. The church that Jesus builds that will be built in the image of his cross is going to be a church not full of Cain's, but of Jesus, who, Cain who denied that he was his brother's keeper. And Jesus, who took Cain's question, as it were, am I my brother's keeper, and turned it into a solemn pledge. I am my brother's keeper. That's the story that unites us, is that Jesus Christ, our great elder brother, Cain was Eve's firstborn son, but Jesus is Eve's greatest born son. And this greatest born son made himself our keeper, gave himself for us, continues to give himself to us in the gospel so that he might keep us, shed his own blood instead of his brother's blood, gave his life in our place to be our substitute, to keep us. Friends, when that motivation of Jesus grips our hearts when we see that he did all of that lived and died in our place on the cross and rose again in triumph that he did all that to gain us forever as his brothers as that sinks in as that word of christ dwells richly within us guess what's going to happen it won't stay inside of us it will come outside of us and we'll see even a text like verse 15 as Jesus' description of what happens, what it sounds like, what it looks like, and what it feels like when the music of the gospel gets in and leavens the life of a whole church. Let's pray together. Lord Jesus, how we pray that far greater than we would want it and perhaps even against the grain of our desires that something so hard would not be what you call us to do. We pray that you would bring this very vision to fruition in our lives together as a congregation. And we pray in your name. Amen.